Hello, and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the man that wears his truth in the desert, Duncan Nicholl. <laughs> oh, good one, Duncan. Hey, Duncan, this book, <laughs> it wasn't very good. It wasn't great. No. 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 So, Geordie, uh, you picked this book, so why don't you yeah, uh, tell our listeners yeah. what we're doing on <laughs> yeah. this podcast? Oh, no, the resentment. I can hear it. Hey, you no, no, book club is not about resentment. You know, sometimes we pick new books that we just don't mm-hmm. know. I, I did Malice and now I think you've done worse. I, so... <laughs> oh, God, my conclusions are coming thick and fast. But yeah, I agree with you, actually. Uh, I feel like, you know, there's blood in all our hands now. We're we're now, there's no honour among thieves, but, you <laughs> know, like we're bound idea. together by this. We've buried a body in a desert. I do like the idea, though, that I've just gone, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's worse than Malice. And uh, people who haven't listened to our earlier book club session about Malice are probably thinking, that's quite a high bar. Isn't Malice quite well received? Yeah, that's a very successful debut. Uh, just like this book, actually. You know, Duncan, I'm starting to have opinions about, you know, the fantasy genres fans and, uh, and their opinions about books, because this book has a lot of good reviews. Yeah, it does. And I'll be honest, before this episode, I did do digging. Now, I tend to avoid any reviews before I've actually read the book. Um, I, I, I do don't want my opinion coloured. But once I finish, in between that and actually recording the podcast, I do like to go out there and just be like, okay, what's the, what's the vibe? Where, you know, where should I go harshest? Um, and, but this one was genuinely, uh, I'd say genuinely mixed to positive, I would say. Mm. I wouldn't say it was glowing, but mixed to positive on this book. And Confusing. I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jordy, where's well, this book? If there's one, oh, so the book we're talking about was uh, A Demon in Silver, um, the debut novel for, um, I was about to say Gareth Hanrahan, but that's not right. Uh, R.S. Thought, 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 blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's the man. Classic. <laughs> R.S. Ford, like the car. Or like Harrison. Or like Harrison. Or like the guy who made Ford cars and loved the Nazis. I'm not saying anything about Fords in general. As we know, Harrison Ford, anti-Nazi. I'm glad that's established. It is very well established. He's done a bunch of movies about it. Go on, talk (laughs) about the book. Uh, sure thing. The one thing I'll say about the book is that it's mercifully short. Uh, I don't know about a page count. I listened to this on audiobook, and I believe you did as well, Duncan. I did indeed. I did indeed. I got sucked into an audible uh, subscription for this month. Oh, people, um, you do that thing where you you finish it with audible. You're done. You, you don't need it anymore. You're not listening to it as much as you thought you were. But then you go online and it says oh, if you cancel now, you won't get your um, be able to listen to things until the end of your your paid time. So I went, oh, I don't want to do that. And then you look down the list of things you can do, and they're like, oh, how about you just pause it. I'm like, oh, perfect. Then I can finish listening to the stuff I'm listening to until the end of it runs out this month. And then I'll just cancel it in the 90 days it gives me. Plenty of time to get around to that job. Um, and then it, You yeah. definitely won't forget. So anyway, it auto-renewed and I just see uh, 7.99 go out of my bank account. I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, but I'm really happy to that this book was on Audible. I'm like, well, to buy this book would have cost me about six quid, so... Kind of saving my money back there, and now I'd have to, you know, have a physical copy about, which is nice. If there's one thing, I only found this out like way into reading the book. 
there's one relief I had is that I didn't actually pay for this book. Amazon gave it to me for free. And that really should have been my first warning. You know, I said last week, I don't remember buying this book. That's because I didn't buy it. They gave it away. They were like, we're not going to lose money on this book. So let's just give give people a little sample. Wow. It is a short one as well. Um, I think I've played, I normally play my audiobooks at about like 1.25 speed. I think that's pretty normal for a lot of people to do that. And I, I don't th- respect that, but carry on. Okay. I've only listened to one book like that. I'll tell you now, Jody, I think this was the book to have done it. Because uh, cutting down that 10 hours to a good 8 hours, mm-hmm. it, it helped in places. Right. I never speed up um, audio. Yeah, I, I, this is coming from someone who, when I edit a podcast, I think, man, I speak really slowly. What is going on here? Jordy, hurry it up. Don't... <laughs> I ought to be like, I talk like William Shatner going... And now, my opinions on the book. But, beside the point, there's only over one book I've, I've sped up whilst listening to it, and that was um, Children of Time, a sci-fi book. And for some reason, the narrator just left these huge pauses in between her sentences. She'd speak quite slowly anyway, but then she'd just, like, take this, like, whole second and a half pause in between, like, full stops. And I was like, what is going on? Dramatic pauses. I No, I think I don't often speed up my books because, uh, like I, I think I've mentioned previously, I listen to a lot of like, the Star Wars ones. And sometimes I just find, like, you can take it faster. You know, you take, I, I, I listen a lot in the car. And it's just, I'm just trying to cre- you know, cram in as much extra book reading as I can on my commute. Mm-hmm. Um, also, when you're doing really long books, when I picked up uh, Way of Kings, and it's like 44 hours... And then you just, you grab the uh, speed and you just crank it up to like 1.1, 1.2, 1.25. And it goes, oh, it's only going to be 32 hours now. And you're like, yes, Mm -hmm. so much of my life back. So much. Speaking of other books, uh, have you been reading anything else in this week? Yeah, I did actually. So as you mentioned, this is quite a short one. Um, I cracked out in Mm -hmm. about four days and I went off and actually read, I didn't actually read any other books. I actually read a load of other comics. Um, I got really into Jason Aaron's Thor, God of Thunder, uh, Marvel comic book mm. run, um, because I was told it it was what inspired one of the more recent uh, movie adaptions. Mm-hmm. So, is this the period before or after Jane Fo- Fo- <laughs> Jane Foster as Thor? This is the period directly before Jane Foster. Uh, Fo- Fo- Doddy, <laughs> I could say it before you. Uh, uh, my speech impediment has become has become contagious. Uh, yes, it's directly before that, and it has the sort of arc that most reflects the most recent uh, film, uh, not gotcha. with the Jane Foster, but with the the, the title of villain, uh, not title of villain. He's not in the title, with, but with titular. the main villain, titular. Thank you, villain. And mm. it was very interesting. It always takes me a while when I go into Marvel comics because I feel that there's this like. Oh, do you know when they talk about it in like CGI, like the uncanny vanny of like special effects, but it looks almost sure. human but isn't? I get that sometimes with like characterization uh, when you're okay. going into a lot of Marvel comics because oh, yeah. it's it's almost Thor. Um, I know from the films, or it's almost Thor. I know. Um, I read a little bit of like some seventies Thor once, and I'm like, it's almost the same, but it's mm-hmm. not quite the same character. And yeah, I yeah. think you get this a lot because obviously, Marvel, you know, they change up the writers and that kind of characterization jumps. So, like, 
And I think it's weird because it's like almost the same. It mm-hmm. means it takes longer. It's not like a new character. You go, yeah, let's get to know this guy. You've got mm-hmm. to be like, okay, well, what would what would the Thor I know do in this situation? Okay, well, this Thor's acting differently. And it, 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 it gets uncomfortable. But I did find after about mm-hmm. like six issues, I was I was there and I really did enjoy it. And I do recommend it. It's good. It's um, great. People like fantasy. That's the key thing. Because it really racks up that kind of fantasy edge to the Marvel mm-hmm. Universe. And I think that's why I do enjoy the, the Thor side of things. Mm-hmm. A little more than the other areas. Yeah, I, I have a serious, serious issues with reading Marvel comics. Such a point that um, I, as a kind of rule, I just don't read them. Uh, I just do not like um, Marvel's writing style, really. Uh, I, I remember reading a, a book which really exemplified this. It was A-Force. Uh, because I was told, hey, this is a really good, this is a really good, uh, really good comic, which everyone should read. Um, and it was really bad. It was, um, and it really exemplified all my issues with it. It took place during this very weird period of time in fairly recent Marvel canon where Doctor Doom became God and, like, did some weird stuff to the universe, like, changing up the multiverse, um, on a whim, and that meant that when Reed Richards finally beats Doctor Doom, every event in this story stopped mattering, uh, and none of it actually happened, such of a point that when a character from who's invented for it comes back, Ms. Marvel doesn't even know who she is. Like, she's like, who are you? And she's like, we're friends. Don't you remember? See comic issue A-Force number one. Um, but all the characters speak the same. Like, all of them talk like they're in a comic book. Um, with wise cracks and undramatic battles. And you're like, I genuinely, if you, like, covered up the characters' faces, I wouldn't know who was talking. And I can't think of many comic books where that's the case. Except, funnily enough... For DC Comics, where I have the exact same issue. Do you know what? Let's get into comics for a bit, because I think it's a more interesting <laughs> conversation. I, I do get where you're coming from, but I do also feel it does vary uh, run, to, run to run. You know, cause there's a lot of different writers working for places like Marvel, and I am mostly talking yeah. about places like Marvel and DC. And I think it's one of the things where some of them do do it okay, and mm-hmm. some of them you really have to like attune to what they're giving out. My bigger yeah. issues is not so much the the wisecrackiness, because I feel like you can just kind of buy into that. You're like, well, that's the story I'm getting when I go out to buy uh, this Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the biggest issue I have with like Marvel's comics. It's at the same time, almost its biggest strength. And it's just like, it has so much kind of that crossover. Like you just yes. said, the A-Force, oh, Doctor Doom, he's God now. And there's so much of a sense of, well, I missed that. Do I need to go back and read it? Or I, oh no, this didn't happen. And then something like, grand will yeah. happen that will affect your plot that isn't it's part really of a love it or hate it i think i i want to love it and to be fair i recently read um donny kate's i believe that's how you pronounce his name uh venom run which i think exemplifies yes. this because i remember you telling me that you didn't like the interconnectedness of that well here's the thing when i originally was reading it i didn't like it until i got to the mm-hmm. end because what happens in that run that run crosses over three different like world events in Marvel where everyone kind of has an impact somewhere else. Uh, the first one is mm-hmm. War of the Realms where you're just like, why are Dark Elves invading in my Venom story about him connecting to this kid? Um, yep. And it's like, oh, that's because Thor's having his climax. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't care. <laughs> Get on yeah, with it yeah, somewhere on, else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then at the very end of the run, it's Venom's story. It's the King in Black arc, which then affected everyone else. 
And then suddenly mm-hmm. when your character who you're following is suddenly on the stage and you're like, oh my God, all these other characters are like gathering around Venom now. And like, oh, that, that was really cool. Obviously, if you're a fan of like, I don't know, Namor, and you're like, why is my Namor comic being interrupted to be invaded by symbiotes? I get why you'd be annoyed. Yeah. But when all of a sudden it's your character, that's why reading Thor, I'm like, I'm now excited. Oh, when I, because like, I know of War of the Realms, vaguely, because mm-hmm. they, they messed up my Venom comic. Now I'm like, oh, well, when I get yep. there, that's going to be exciting. Yeah, there was a bit when, um, there was a bit in when I was reading Miss Marvel that, um, I was absolutely loving it. I was having such a great time reading it. And then all of a sudden, with no transition, suddenly everyone in the story was super duper depressed because we'd suddenly hit the point when uh, a planet, an alternate Earth was going to come into the universe of Marvel 616 and smash into uh, smash into Earth and destroy both of them. And all the characters were like, we're accepting our fate. We're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to lay down and die. So all the characters were doing things like talking to their mothers about how much they're going to miss them and confessing their feelings. And all of Miss Marvel's like superheroes get put on pause to worry about her impending death. And because the conclusion to that is not in Miss Marvel, um, I buy the next issue and be like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. It was all resolved off screen. Don't worry about it. Uh, Miss Marvel's mother knows she's a superhero now, but that will almost never play into the comic. And uh, she's an Avenger now. Hooray. I think that's the added factor, uh, particularly for people who I consider you know, myself quite a casual Marvel fan. Well, I couldn't stand in the Venom run. I think it must be the same in the Miss Marvel run. You just don't know. It just does these things and it seems really left field. And yep. it's never... I ha- Literally, I have to go to Reddit each time, basically. I have to go to Reddit, go to the fucking forums and be like, uh, where, how how do I get the complete story for this? And it's just like, uh, excuse me, so you, did you not know you must read issues uh, two, three, and five of the Absolute Carnage yeah. run? And you're like, no, where, when did Marvel tell me this? And they're like, well, they made it very clear when they released the issues. And you're like, yeah, but I'm reading the trades, like, mm-hmm. months later. <laughs> and there's never, it's not in the back. There's not some, I think that's all I want. I want to be able to pick yeah. up a trade, look in the back, and they'll be like, here's the core plot. They and really then... just need a thing to say, like, here's what you need to know, all right? Like, if I'm going to read Superior Spider-Man, which is a great run, um, but there's still tons of stuff that you get completely sidewinded now. I picked up Superior Spider-Man, and I was like, wait, 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 wait. J. Jonah Jameson and Peter Parker are brothers-in-law now? Are they? Wait, yeah. Oh, how can they be brothers-in-law? <laughs> Their parents got married, except, obviously, Peter Parker's parents, in this case, is Aunt May. Aunt May married so not actually Jane brothers-in-law. Jameson's... Dad. Set dad. Dad. J. Jonah Jameson has a father who married Aunt May. Oh, okay. Who married Aunt May, and that makes them brothers-in-law. Yeah, wow. basically brothers-in-law. Yeah. Except for things. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's it's very silly. Stuff. It is silly and like, but should we is... talk about a book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about Miles Morales. Um, <laughs> no, I just want to say one thing on the on the plus side to all of Marvel. Oh, Marvel, because this thing uh, I've heard of Miles Morales. I've heard of this before. When it does focus on one character and it gives you a character-driven story, like uh, when I was reading Venom, and it's just doing like that beep. Spoilers, sorry, that's a plot twist. Like when you're just focusing on a human relationship, I'll they censor do that. Just... I'll do a beep. Um, when they do this, uh, the focusing on that little relationship, it does do really well, and that's why it always gets frustrating because you you feel like you're just batting away, just get out of my character-driven plot, swiping yep. away at all the world events and like side series. Ah, oh, 
Right, uh, Demon and Silver. Demon and Silver. All right, that's the first 20 minutes gone. Nice. And so, everyone, so we read uh, The Demon and Silver. Um, you should probably tell we didn't think the most highly of it. Um, but oh, I feel like um, it's there's the scene, the scene, the classic scene mm-hmm. in Gladiator. And there's oh. a moment, Geordie, where at the very end of it, the sword, you know, he's yelled his piece, he's thrown his sword at me in the audience, and I have to be like, yeah, I was a little bit entertained. <laughs> um, I wish I could say I was entertained. Um, I didn't really find this fun bad. Um, I, I was looking forward to talking about some stuff in it, and that's what kind of kept me going. But on the whole, I, I, it just got worse and worse for me. It started off kind of basic and kind of boring, and as the book kept going, I was like, wow, you are just committed to not getting better. Interesting. I had a slightly different experience. I mm-hmm. found the book started really basic and yep. a, a little bit dull. Um, yep. But there was a moment, and it didn't last for the whole book, but there was a moment about... So this book has multiple uh, POV characters. Uh, the core ones being uh, Justin, uh, a character called Justin, who's like a young... Uh, knight turned mercenary uh, a captain of silver who is a mysterious woman who just kind of appears out of the desert one day and gets taken in by this uh, kindly farm owner and she comes mm-hmm. like a surrogate mother to his sons um, yeah more about that later a young girl called Olivia mm-hmm. um, who I genuinely thought was a shortening of Olivia but nope just Olivia and yes, it's a name why. I know I, I found that out I didn't I yeah. didn't judge the first Roman the wife of the first Roman emperor was called Olivia um, and Livia, who is a young farm girl who discovers she may have mysterious powers. Um, and that, that's your original three POVs for about the first half of the novel. Halfway through the novel, we get introduced to the surprise fourth POV. Yeah, very big surprise. I know. And I'll be honest with you, Jordy. Um, wherever the book was, and I'm not quite sure what grade it was on uh, when this character came in, uh, whether or not it was on an E or a D or an F... I personally think this character took us up a grade. Oh man, I think it took us down a grade. <laughs> I was like, you cannot just introduce a new character, a new main character at the 75% mark of your novel. That's not fair. I I genuinely was thought it was a bit daring, almost cheeky. It How is dare daring. You. It is, it is cheeky. <laughs> I'm not saying it was the best way to implement it. In fact, I've had mm. thoughts about how it could have been implemented uh, more seamlessly and in a way that I actually think I might have enjoyed more. But no. yeah. yep. it entertained me. I was more entertained reading his uh, like flashback chapters uh, than I had been reading the previous bit of the novel. Yeah, yeah. I can, I, you know, I can appreciate that. And, I, I, you know, I, I'm someone who actually appreciates audacity in an author so i i i I, there is a there is a manner in which i could have really liked that section and that could have picked me up just like you i just don't think it hit the landing but let's talk about the actual breakdown of this book i think it it shouldn't take long the world setting is that uh it's a world of magic but all the gods have gone away they've departed uh and in the and with it magic is gone and in the century or so following the vanishing of magic um, the world has entered a new normal state. Political boundaries have moved around, and they've entered a sort of status quo, where they have, like, barbarians in the north raiding down 
They've had to, the, the civilized nations have had to unite politically, but uh oh, we're at each other's throats again, and now everyone's looking for that spark of magic to return to get the leg up on their enemies. As Duncan put very well, we have three main uh, protagonists to give us perspective on, and Livia is the first person to start manifesting magic to be seen in a century. Exactly. I think that that summarised the uh, so the opening premise. And be honest, the majority of the first half of the novel uh, breaks yeah, down. Yeah, it's into, a slow start. It breaks down into sort of uh, Lydia Massif magic, and loads of factions go. Well we, well, we want her on our side, regardless of uh, her opinion on the matter. Yeah. And thus, her beautiful childhood home is destroyed, and she's whisked away on a terrible adventure. Uh, where she bumps into uh, uh, Justin, who bravely steps in to be her protector after some shenanigans. Uh, they kind of go on the run, I think. It. Most of this plot is driven by some new person kidnaps Livia, yep. and others follow. Yeah. I think that's something, um, mostly. And therein lies an issue with the novel, which is that... Um, Livia is fundamentally our, our main protagonist. She's the person we can um that we can relate to the most. And as everyone who listened to our previous episode knows, she's the one on the blurb. She's the farm girl who the whom the story orbits around. Everyone else, Silver, um, Justin, and later Caleb, all exist uh, and act in accordance to what she does. She's the center of the board. But she has the least agency in the entire novel. She doesn't get to make any big decisions. Everything she does is made for her. She's either kidnapped or she's following someone else. I think in there lies for the biggest weakness um, mm-hmm. of the entire piece. It really is. You feel, you do feel. I, I, I felt. Sorry, I won't tell tell you what you felt, Jordy. I felt. I felt that. The biggest weakness of Olivia is that she kind of gets a setup of being uh-huh. that feisty, more independent young woman. You know, when yep. we introduce her at the start in her village, you know, she's she we describe to her. She always goes out. Her dress always comes back muddy. She goes off on adventures. Yeah, she's forthright and you know stands up to the bullies. That kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. But the moment she kind of gets whisked away, and to be fair, some traumatic stuff happens to her. I I yep. I think it's perfectly fair from her. Yeah, human outlook that this person may suddenly start receding back in on herself and not quite be you know, the confident young youth she was. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily make for the most uh, interesting protagonist. And yeah. even and it's inconsistent, you know, as a reader to be like, I don't know how she's going to act. It's like what you were talking about with Thor earlier. You don't get a sense for how she's supposed to act. So you never get the satisfaction of, oh yeah, Livia's being Livia. She's she's doing what she does. Yeah, I suppose her main characteristic is that she seems to get sort of a bit of Stockholm quite quickly. Um, whoever yep. kidnaps her most recently, she becomes friendly with. Yeah. I Honestly, that seems to be it. You That's make friends good. wherever you go, Duncan. And there's something to be said for that. And I do like the fact that she's meant to be this trusting... That she's the good. She's the good. She's the trusting, the the honest. Um, but I would have liked there being a little bit more bite to her. No pun intended. Uh ho ho. Well done, Duncan. Thank you. <sighs> um, 
the moment the prologue started, I had a bad feeling. The the prologue of the book um is like very it kind of felt, I don't know, kind of Warhammer 40k. Uh do you get what I mean when I say that? It's the land of darkness and despair. There has been a great yeah, battle and, it's like, and now we starts on a despair. battlefield. There's angels fighting demons and like it's like thousands of people dying in the opening scene. But it all has to be done, Duncan, because there's some obscure quest. Something needs to be done, even though we don't actually know what it is at this point, and we won't know until the penultimate at chapter of the entire book. Yeah, if if that that explanation was enough for you, then yes, you do find out in this book. It doesn't add how do I put it? It's not epic you... in the sense that it has lip service to this idea of thousands and blood and war, but it doesn't sound grandiose. It's not It's not like a scope that I go, oh my goodness, I yeah, feel it's, this it's history. Of, I, 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 you're right, and it's actually kind of hard to put my finger on how it doesn't quite live up to it. But it, it, it does sort of feel like, you're right, that they say thousands die, but it doesn't feel big. The whole world feels quite small. And... I have a theory for this. Um, I think this world suffers a little bit because we hear this on Audible. Because this is going back to the Green Rider. I made a similar comment. I really appreciate a map. And obviously on Audible I didn't have a map. And I didn't really get a sense of where places were, what the battle was across. And also, more importantly, I didn't get a sense of of real diversity in cultures and what like the mon the scale of the mundane world yeah get yeah me? and that sort of had a bit of an outlet for us um i'm looking into it and i i can't i've searched a demon silver map and i can't find anything on google image search so i don't think this book has a map i i did see i think it must it might be a fan-made one yeah but um, i can see what you're looking at right now it's definitely fan-made if that is professional work, we apologise. We're not trying to you know, derive you. I'm sure you put your heart it's and soul into it. It's definitely not professional work. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's not just about uh, map and size of this is a big map. What I mean that is the scope of the mundane world is what I'm coining it. In that I don't feel that there are loads of towns and settlements between the story. I This world really gives the sense of the only places that exist are the places that the characters visit. And obviously, none of these places exist. And obviously, the only places that mm-hmm. need to exist are places the characters see. But um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Um, I, think of like in Lord of the Rings. We only sure. see a bit of Hobbiton um, and a little bit of the Hobbits travel out. They stop over on the edge of, oh, what's it called? Br- Tookfield. Oh. Uh, there's like where the. So Frodo goes and stays with his cousins, or where his cousin lives. And then they go to Bree. Buckland. Buckland. Thank you. Buckberry Ferry. Yes. Where did the Tooks live? I know that has a Took bunny name. But anyway, they go to Buckland and then they go to Bree. But when you visit these towns, there's always a little reference to, uh, oh, there's another place a little north of Bree. Oh, yeah, we only mm-hmm. see two bits of the Shire, but there's also this section and this section. And over here, there's a the, the, the Blue Mountains and people live over there. There wasn't much of that in this book. Very much every place that gets mentioned gets mentioned when we go there yeah and we had a an issue of this because um early on when we were both very early in the book you sent me a message con- uh, a bit confused about some of the world building of this book and it was about trousers 
Yes. And what we discovered was that neither of us knew where certain characters were in relation to others. Because you were like, why are they wearing these clothes in the desert? And I went, that character's in the desert? And he and you said, isn't he? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm going to pause everything else we're saying. The trousers, people. Let's talk about trousers. Holy mackerel. Talk oh. about cultural... Uh, is it? Is this cultural appropriation? It, can, appropriation? it might be. It yeah, might I think be. I think this book might be cancelled. I feel like cultural. What do they call trousers in this book, Duncan? Trues. Trues. That's right. Uh, d- uh, so, uh, for those who don't know, trues is just a Scottish word for trousers. Um, typically, it's going to be trousers that are kind of a tight fit with a tartan pattern, but they're just trousers. So, Aris Ford, whenever he would refer to the word trousers or pants, he chooses to use the word trues. Look it up. He's from Lancashire, so he's not Scottish himself. Um, interesting choice. Interesting choice. Why do you think... I, well, I think I know why. Why do you think he's referring to them as trues instead of trousers? Especially right. since, as we're saying, they live in a desert. I went through several theories on this. Number one was my initial theory was that the guy reading the audiobook was just incompetent and didn't know how to pronounce trouser. Possible. Um, then I was thinking, well, maybe there's the, the use of the word truth that I, as an expert, I'm, I'm not aware of. You know, maybe it is a cultural thing and I'm actually showing my ignorance to the world. Um, I eventually drew that out after some time on Google. Um, and then I just went, I got to my was like, is he trying to infer, like, a bit of Scottish culture onto these characters? Is that what he's going for? But then I was like, mm. but they're definitely in a hot place. Like, And they, they're they, not Scottish. They're not Scottish. They're not even... None of these people have, like, Scottish names. Even, like, modern Scotland, like... Nothing's coded. Nothing other than no. the word truth. Nothing else in this book is coded Scottish. Except the anti-penultimate chapter, the third to last, two characters, a man and a woman, are wearing kilts. And you're like, whoa, whoa, you had to get one more... Sucker punch in there where Geordie's head explodes a little bit, being like, they're wearing kilts. Are they still in the desert? They're still in the desert in that scene, aren't they're they? They're still in the desert. Do they come from Scotland? Was this another nation on the map that I didn't realise, which is meant to be Scotland? They they hit me over the head with a lot of world building, but no one said anything about a great migration from. And here's the thing: I don't even know what sort of desert is this. Like, is it the Mojave? Is it like the Sahara? They never talk about the animal life or the plant life. Uh, I, I struggle with this because I always assume whenever they throw deserts out in literature, unless I'm told otherwise, you're getting images of like rolling dunes in my head. That's, yeah, that's and I'm a little bit more prepared for, you know, uh, like no, Savannah. Sure. No, I well, I don't think the Savannah is um is well. Here's the thing. Um, they reveal one point. They do refer to it as a desert, and there is one animal which we encounter. That being like a lion or at least a big cat. And I went, lions don't live in the desert. They live in Savannah. The Savannah's not a desert, it's a grassland. Are you, do you feel, because this book genuinely had me going, I'm so, like, I get this reaction at work a lot. Uh, maybe other people can relate to this. Do you ever get that moment where you're dealing with someone at work, someone who maybe he's in their work, you're dealing with a different separate company, a supplier, or maybe a different department, and you just have this moment of, I'm sorry, I must have misunderstood you. Because if you're saying what I think you're saying, I think well, you might be stupid. 
I can't say <laughs> I think you're stupid. So I'm just going to pretend that I didn't understand what you said. And you can explain it again. And then they explain it again. You're like, okay, yeah, I did get it right the first time. That's stupid. This book gave me those moments. Yeah, I mean, obviously I don't want to be like rude about it. And the kind of the meanest thing you can say about an author's book is, I just don't think you're an intelligent person. But it really is some stuff in here which is just kind of baffling. And some of it is just, why did you write that? That's stupid. Like, for example, Silver gets her name in this book. Because, and I'll ask you if you flagged this like I did. Because one of the farmer's kids... I've just realized I've forgotten all their names. I know the dad is called Garvin, but I don't remember what his kids are called. Where she says that she rescues him from like a falling tree or something. And he says that she was as quick as silver. And they call her silver. Do you see the problem with this, Duncan? Yeah, a little bit. So quick silver. Yeah. As in the material. Yeah. I've always known as mercury. These boys have a lot of experience with mercury. That's 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 one good point. Do they know what a thermometer is? My bigger problem is is that the quick in quicksilver doesn't mean fast. It means alive. Like the heart quickened. It it you know it came back to life. So the quick as silver. It's not quick as silver. It's quicksilver. It's because it's living silver. It moves in reaction to heat. Oh. Anyway, yeah. Okay. So that phrase, I'm like, that's very silly. Okay, I do want to say. I don't know what I want to say. Okay, because you I, feel the impulse. You want to defend him. I do want to defend him because I, I had, uh, there was entertainment. And I was, for a good bit of this book, looking through for that tongue-in-cheek um, perspective. And its tongue has got to be very deep into that cheek. But I was sort of <laughs> looking for that. Um, but I do feel the rest of the novel then would sometimes get really dark in points. That would sort of offset it's that very tone. dark. It's very, and I'd say not just dark, I call it edgy. Oh, it's 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 needlessly gruesome. There's bits yep. of gruesomeness that don't like heighten the scene. Um, halfway f- during the early sections of this book, uh, people about a third of the way mm-hmm. through, I genuinely started thinking, like, you know, you're forming opinions. How do I talk about this book um, at the book club? What do I say? And then I thought, okay, one thing I might say about this book is, oh, I like it more when it's being lighthearted. And then mm-hmm. the juxtaposition of the dark bits, oh, that's kind of ruining it because I wanted this book to be a more lighthearted jovial adventure and uh there's this mm-hmm. earlier section with sort of justin and murphy is it murphy oh mullen, mullen. there's an early section with uh, justin and mullen these are the two like mercenary guys you know out on their own adventure well i'm like oh yeah that will do to kind of like a buddy he's off facing the world oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's the young exactly lady. right mm-hmm. but it always brings it down or he always reveals it back by having uh, justin say things like I need to save the girl to atone for all the terrible, terrible, terrible things I've done. I've done some exactly. terrible things. Oh, there'll be moments where it'll be like, just to be clear, I never um, like killed children or assaulted a woman, but I've also done terrible, 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 terrible things. And you're like, D- did you? Because nothing yeah, in your character also, speaks to that. It's, it's, it's so, and here's a serious problem in this book. It's show, don't tell. This book really exemplifies that in a lot of places because you'll have scenes where he goes, I've done really bad things. I'm not going to specify what they are because I, as the author, need you to um to, to find your limit in terms of what's the worst thing you can think of him having done where you can still like him. And I don't need to decide that for myself. You get to put that in place for you, which is clever, but it keeps being like there's no hints towards what it could be. It's just stated, I've done bad things. I'm a bad guy. Stay away from me, Bella. <laughs> 
Um, and it's also not set up as a character reveal. We're not waiting to find out what he's done or have his past bite him in the ass nope. sort of deal. It's just there to kind of reestablish that this character is in need of like a redemption arc. Without really yeah. seeing where he fell from grace. I want to go back a bit now and talk about okay. uh, Justin. Focus on him. I, so you keep calling him Justin. Is his name Justin or is it Justin? It's Justin. Uh, uh, okay. But... Do I mention we, the no, no, Olivia We've listened Olivia to the same thing? audiobook. The narrator definitely sounded like he said Justin a bunch of times. I think it's Justin. And I did a event you've settled on Justin. But he did. He said things. I'm like, is it Justin? And I'll be honest, I recognize Justin as a more common name. So I will probably go ahead and call him Justin. Um, I think Justin, the way he's written it, has literally just gone. I need to fantasify the name Justin. Who ever heard of a fantasy hero called Justin? Hey, it's my fantasy hero, Steve. It's I the it's the it's the hero of it's the hero of the Broken Valley, Lewis. Right, next time we um we play D together, my new character is gonna be called Steve or Mark. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's gonna be some fucking reference to a comic book writer. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's my MO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh for people who don't know, I played a character in our most recent what, what people don't know. I don't think we ever talked about this. Uh, we're playing we a sci-fi. We we're playing a sci-fi uh, RPG game between me and Geordie. Geordie's our forever DM, doing great. Um, Thank you. And basically, I named my character Captain Jim Osley after the uh, comic writer Christopher Priest because he was also a priest. Exactly. It was such yes. a good reference, and it genuinely took everyone about six months to discover that I'd done this subtle. And I honestly. I, complete, I found it completely by, by accident. I was just looking at an old comic book. I was listening to a video about an old uh, comic book Spider-Man run. And I was like, hang on a second. This is a weird coincidence. And uh, he, he sent it to me. And he's like, you know, was this on purpose? Or did this, did we enter in the fact that it was genuinely just a coincidence? I, I, was, I was leaning towards coincidence because it seemed way too much of a coincidence that I'd have run across the coincidence than it, than it would be on purpose. And then I just sent back in the chat a screen grab of, I think it was like Conan the Barbarian by um, Jim Osley. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where I got him yeah. from. And I was happy, people, for no one to get that reference and just sit there with a little bit of smugness in the back of my head. Like, oh, I do oh. that all the time. <laughs> I do that all the time. Make stuff I think no one will ever understand. I'd be like, <laughs> aren't I clever? Speaking of people who think they're clever. You're going to be mean to the author again. How come measurements in this book suddenly go from leagues to miles? The whole first part of this book is all league. It's three leagues here, ten leagues here, and then after a while, they just switch to miles. That's kind of weird. Um, I'm trying to come up with a plausible defense of this. Maybe because they're in the same country. Um, it's so, well, it's because um, it's like sometimes I might describe um how far it is to the corner shop, and I might only give it in meters because that's just the more applicable applicable measurement. Great. Oh, you've done it, Duncan. Good job. But it also means that um, I have no concept of how far away things are. Because no, I tell never. you what, I don't know what a league is. Not a clue. Mile, yeah, I've got a rough idea. But a league, what's that? Leagues are really bad measurements because even though I do know how far they are, basically three miles, uh, that's so far. Like you're going to go, we have to travel a league. And I'm like, whoa, I'm a guy who loves to walk. But a three mile walk is a long way to go for basically anything. Yeah, but if you're travelling, if it's meant to be like a several-day backpack, mm -hmm. I would kind of get that. Yeah, you know, if you were like, oh, we're going 12 leagues between cities. 
it's very much like, you know, like, belongs to the old world of shillings and, um, and weird decimal systems where it was like 240 pennies to a pound, you know? The old money. Is it not uh, just oh. a standard part of Imperial? Uh, I'm not super clear, so like... I don't know, actually. I don't... People don't talk about leagues very much unless it's a fantasy novel because it's a super good fantasy name. The first time I encountered the word league, aside from 30,000 leagues under the sea... Um, also, did you know that the, the 50,000 leagues under the sea don't measure depth? It measures the distance they travel in the submarine, like across the oceans. I will tell you now, I did know that, because um, I think that depth would get it right into the mantle. I think that depth would take it out the other side. <laughs> it's 150,000 miles. I don't. I'm going to have to honestly here, Geordie. I don't know what the diameter of the Earth is off the top of my head. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I think I do know the circumference, though, so I should be able to work it out, but I'm yeah. uh, not putting that effort in. The circumference of the Earth is greater than the radius, though, right? Well, it has to be. And 50,000 leagues is enough to circumnavigate the Earth, like, several times. So, yeah, I think it would take you out the other side of the planet. Wow. Anyway, let's talk about the book. Yeah, <laughs> and not no. a Jules Verne novel that neither of us have read. Do you ever get the feeling, Duncan, that we're avoiding our our, our moral duty and uh, not reviewing a book that we said we'd review? Because I kind of get the feeling now. Uh, I think you're fine, Geordie. Uh, we made it very clear when we set up this podcast. This is a book club. Uh, people are here to have chats. Um, and if you want to avoid the book and drink the wine, please be our guest. But no, you're right. We do need to get the conversation yeah. back on course. So, The Demon in Silver. Geordie, I'll be honest with you. This isn't a very yeah. good book. But I actually had some fun. Okay, what did you enjoy about the book? What's some things that stood out to you? Caleb. I enjoyed Caleb. The character of Caleb, um, he's introduced about 75% of the way through. And he is a young man who is essentially kidnapped. He's a street urchin. And he is kidnapped and taken away and sold to a warrior cult in the desert. And he is forced to go to a horrible warrior cult school. Where the weak are mm -hmm. beating the, the, the little boys who aren't told that when the, the bell goes, they need to get out of bed, are beaten to death. Um, and then sent to the training field. Uh, a warrior cult. Very edgy. Very edgy. A warrior cult that in the final, the final uh, challenge before they ascend to become a sword saint, they're made to fight one of their own. And Geordie, I need to talk to you about this. Because this is a trope okay. I've seen in quite a few places. Do you know, is there any yep, historical yep. precedent for this? Right, we need to get our elite of elites. I know what we'll do. We'll cut our yep. fighting force in half. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's so stupid. Like, you can have two great warriors, or you can have one. Because you need the warriors to kill each other. Because either you have a great warrior and a not great warrior, and you, you, you like, what's even the point in having the ceremony if you're just like, I know my elite warrior is going to kill my not elite warrior, or the, the not elite warrior gets lucky and kills the elite warrior, and I lost my elite warrior. It's, it's very silly. Or you've just got, right, two actual elite warriors who are at the top of their game, mm -hmm. and it is just luck, and all you're doing is losing. Like, even if that other elite warrior, because they, they draw uh -huh. lots, don't they, to kind of pick who fights who. So it's just like, you're not actually maximising the best warriors for no. this session. And, oh, it annoys me so much because you just look and you go, but how is this helping you? How is this meant to be sustainable? Mm -hmm. 
you send your warriors out. Like, do that. Be like, and your final task, go forth and assassinate the enemy general. And only those that make yeah, it back. Or do something really evil. Kill a baby. Prove how fucked up you are. Exactly. And I do get there's a little bit of that element to this scene. Because meant to be, you're so committed. You've trained with these young men your entire life, essentially. And now you must turn mm-hmm. and, and, and show that you're willing to kill one of your sword brothers. Yeah. You know what I really need to encourage in my elite warriors? Um, a lack of loyalty. That's super important. They've got to be. They've got to have no sense of loyalty to me. It's true because they're like your loyalty is to like the gods or the higher ups, but it's also like basically training to be like, yeah. So if God ever seems to be speaking your own head to kill us all, I want yeah. to know you don't do trust that. anyone. Okay, listen, you can't rely on anybody. So when you receive orders from us, don't trust them because we might tell you to kill your brother. Anyway. I can appreciate why someone would enjoy these chapters because it's only three chapters and it follows its own little arc. Sort of like a short story in the middle. Um, I didn't really have a great time because I was so caught off guard by the introduction of Caleb as a story. Again, you're introduced to a new perspective character 75% of the way through. I actually kind of felt disrespected. Um, I So I couldn't really engage with it and actually there was a point when I realized I hadn't literally fallen asleep but i'd completely entered a passive mode of listening when i realized i didn't actually pass what had happened like the previous page and had to like backtrack a bunch i don't want to say that i didn't that didn't happen to me as well but especially at the very Mm -hmm. end when we're getting our like big plot um kind of plot dumps law dumps sorry about like the old gods and what were happening i basically turned off because i'll be honest with you by that point i kind of knew I probably wasn't going forward um, in this story. Yep. I just went, I don't need to fill my brain with this. I was in the exact same I was in the exact same place. I was running it really hard to even remember stuff. Uh, but the Caleb story comes to its conclusion after he's been made into this great warrior. Um, he's captured on a mission, and we get our edgiest scene yet. Yes, we do. There is a we're gonna have to probably do a trigger warning at the start of this episode to be honest uh because there is a re- i think we should just not even really talk about it in much detail like there's a torture scene and it's really nasty yeah it's really nasty um i think it does something's quite interesting for the character in terms of it's meant to give him like a physical wound um and that yep, sort of yep. changes he, he has a disability now which is interesting, but I don't think it really mm-hmm. expands quite on the psychological impacts, although the character does have quite an interesting sort of uh, hallucination scene uh, afterwards, which I did quite uh, like the approach. But in terms of... Uh, I genuinely don't remember that. In terms of, I genuinely don't remember that. In terms of uh, uh, these types of scenes, I can only reference two others. Um, I personally think that if you've read uh, Game of Thrones and some of the Ramsey Bolton sections or the Reek POVs and the flashbacks to Ramsay Bolton um, that I personally found a little bit more kind of uncomfortable on the psychological level and as anyone here has ever read Mark Lawrence's uh, The King of Thorns the final in his Broken Empire book mm. there's a torture scene in that book where I'm not a screenish person but I had to close the book at points and just sort of mm-hmm. skip the pages um, it's not quite that level of screamish um, I personally feel that if I was re-approaching this work, I would have preferred mm-hmm. to have done it where he simply got the disability and he, he just had to deal with sort of the mental load of realising he wasn't a fully able uh, person anymore and he couldn't 
occupy his old role in his sort of warrior society. That's the interesting bit. Because that's the part you're trying to get to, for everything else is supposed to serve as a means to get to that point. Technically, it didn't have to be a torture scene. It could have been falling off a cliff. All that matters is that he has a weeping eye, and um, he has a he has a limp, and one of his hands doesn't work properly, so he can't use his like left hand in a fight anymore. And the whole point of this is supposed to be that you know, seeing he has to see the world differently now. Um, that he's no longer the strongest person who can just crush everyone around him. Of course, that turns out not to be true. He can still do all of that. He's still super badass, and it's not actually clear how his disability comes into it ever. That's a... I mean, that's actually a problem. Like, people have pointed out how characters like Daredevil aren't good disability representation because it shows someone being completely competent and unaffected by their disability, even though textually they're supposed to be. And that's kind of like, it doesn't accurately portray how someone can still be super cool and badass whilst um whilst having a disability and you know and just sort of erases it completely i'm i'm kind of jumping up on the board to my feet right now because i get to praise yep. the book that we we uh, talked about last week geordie because wouldn't you agree that the yes yes i guess i would i would agree and i said so last week brilliant uh, Spa was good disability representation, in my opinion. Spa in the gutter prayer, not the gutter's prayer, as I mistakenly called it for most of that episode. Yeah, and which I had to rename our episode after the fact, because I realised I'd written it wrong. Um, it's a great example of a character who's super strong. Um, he's like a stone man. Mm-hmm. Um, he can, like, he throw the punches like anyone. He can take all the hits. But because he has, like, this sort of stone disease that's, like, petrifying his body, he, he struggles to get out of bed mm-hmm. in the morning. Like, he physically can't bend to sit up. And it's such a nice thing yeah. of, like, you know, he is capable, but some basic things mm-hmm. that we can all do, naturally, he needs extra help. Um, it's a great yeah. message of, like... There's someone... There's a someone I follow on Twitter who's a um, a, a disability consultant in the tabletop role-playing game industry. She's most famous for creating a supplement to the D&D rules for the combat wheelchair. You ever stumbled across this, Duncan? No, I have not, but I want to. It... It turns out she went to university with us. Um, she was in my year at University of Sussex. What? Yeah. So we didn't realize we were we were almost next to a tabletop royalty. But um, she wrote this extensive thread, which really wanted to make me read The Witcher, which I still haven't done, um, uh, about how Geralt is actually a really good example of writing a disabled character. Like he has like chronic pain and like an injury that he has to cope with. This book commits a bit of a faux pas in not only does his his disability not really come into it, like he's still super capable in fights and there's no real indication about how it's slowing him down. But then they fix him. He just gets cured. And the thing which changes his perspective isn't becoming disabled. And therefore, he has to change his perspective on the world that, you know, he gets treated differently and he reflects upon his own actions or he's no longer powerful enough to to make people do what he wants. And that changes perspective on other people. His attitude changes because Livia uses her magic to heal him and then he's just grateful to her. That's it. And this is kind of what disappointed me in this scene is that I feel like it was a bit of a missed opportunity because I feel like this could have been done very interestingly. Um, I think this would have been better, and George Tam, if you agree, if he'd always had a disability. If, say, his whole life he'd had a disability, but he had to, like, fight to overcome it and still... Because he lived in a very harsh society. 
and then he suddenly had to adapt to life without it. I think that could have been a very interesting thing to explore. But this is... Yes, but I also wouldn't want him his reaction to it to be purely gratitude. No. Because that's a very emotionally complicated response to have. And I'm going to make an assumption that R.S. Ford doesn't live with a disability. I don't know anything about him personally, but I do not get the sense that he's writing from his personal experience here. But that's why I think it would have been interesting to explore, to explore the fact that it, by getting cured, yeah, he's now, it's changed where his position in society, it's taken away something of his identity. Like, there's an interesting story that could have kind of maybe been told uh, yeah. just out of reach. And maybe if Caleb was actually the main character and not, and not introduced three quarters of the way through the novel, maybe you could have laid that up. But unfortunately, we have to spend more time with silver and justin and it caleb kind of replaces silver in the story because she vanishes completely she does i was convinced silver was our main character for a while it the book is named after her but she's just vanishes okay i want to just grab hold of um caleb in his introduction one more time and say very well do you think this book would have been improved if we'd gotten caleb side by side with the other characters and he's just yeah, yeah, it would have been improved. If he were... Because I wouldn't have had that immediate knee-jerk opposition to him when he just showed up. I would feel like, yes, Caleb is a part of this book. He is a character who exists in it. And, yeah, uh, he would feel much more in tune with the rest. I'd be excited for when he met the other characters. Um, as opposed to being like, oh, I guess you guys are all just in the same location now. That's weird. I also feel like I may have enjoyed it more if we could have had... A bit of time with the unknown and the unknown individual who was crippled and could have had a moment of like oh that's caleb whereas i never got yeah because yeah. you introduced this character who's crippled uh, who we don't know their name and then it goes flashback and you're like oh i, I guess they're uh, i guess they're related aren't they I guess that's mm-hmm. him isn't it um and i think i would really enjoy that if we sort of saw the flashbacks of caleb and I'm sorry, I'm talking about a book that we didn't read, but which I think... Yeah, but we, we often have to talk about it when we say, like, it's a missed opportunity and I wish we'd done this, which isn't really a fair thing to review, but it is a genuine reaction that people have to reading books, being like, my anticipation it was not led up to. Something wasn't set up well. But I really want to talk about Silver. Let, let's talk about Silver. Silver um, is a weird character for me. Duncan, have you ever read... Uh, Duncan, have you ever watched Star Trek Voyager? No. Okay, so there's this character called Seven of Nine. I've heard of Seven, Seven of Nine. Seven of Nine is a bit of a... Yeah, I've seen so Seven of Nine is a bit of a divisive character in the world of Star Trek because she has a ton of fans because she's written to be a character who people would enjoy seeing on TV. And she also has a lot of people who don't really like her because she feels kind of off place and she causes a lot of friction in the cast, but also because there's a lot of misogyny going into the creation of his character the actress for example was crammed into a corset day in day out which is so tight that sometimes she passed out um the character is written to be overly sexualized which is very strange for the character who she is because she's a former borg and you're like why is the former borg who's lost all individuality and is learning how to be human why is she our eye candy that's kind of weird she came to mind a lot when I was reading the chapters about Silver. Okay, so I'm seeing the links here. So Silver is a character who were introduced as a sort of a broken person in the desert who has no memory of their former life. 
um, yeah. who suffers and drags her way to this farmhouse and mm-hmm. gets taken in by them uh, by the kind old elderly farmer and I said earlier that she takes a kind middle-aged handsome farmer uh, she takes on like a surrogate role of like uh, the mother figure into the family but you're right yeah. there is a lot of um a lot of her and the farmer's sexual relationship that uh maybe doesn't serve the, the plot yes it actually sort of indicates to me a lot of weird stuff about R.S. Ford. Really comes down to how he writes women, um, like just so strange. Um, Silver and her relationship with the family—it goes so fast. She recovers unnaturally quickly. We understand that there's something inhuman about her, and if you're paying attention to the title of a book, you might figure out what that is. Um, I think it's pretty obvious right from the start that, like, she's, like, a former angel, and she's fallen to Earth. Like, I don't think that's much of a surprise. But as she recovers, um, immediately they're like, oh, Silver's gonna be on her way soon. They don't call her Silver yet. She's gonna be on her way soon. But then, as I said earlier, she rescues one of the sons from, like, a disaster, and she gets, she gets brought into, she gets brought in. And then she's immediately part of the family. At the first time she and the boy whom she later rescues meet... He says, she could be our new mother because their mum's dead. And you know what kids love to do? Um, They love to accept new mother figures. You know, after a mother dies and then another woman enters their life, they very, very readily accept them in the new maternal role. Um, That's why stepmothers are so university beloved and there's no stories about how they're all evil. (laughs) Like, come on, what part of basic human interaction would lead you to write that scene? It's so strange. I I mean, uh, see, I'm having to play the defender here. Um, you could argue that it's a, a show of the harshness of this world, that whatever happened to take this kid's poor mother away from him, he was so traumatised, he no longer adheres to what we would consider standard, normal children reactions. No, here's here's the thing. I'm super willing to accept that it's very obvious that that kids seek out uh, parental figures. That, you know, when a dad is missing in a household, a kid will look to a male teacher, for example, for to to become to take on the paternal the take on the paternal role. But they do this unconsciously. They don't do it consciously, and they might even be bashful about the very idea of someone taking that parent's place, even as they imprint on them the roles that would be given to the parental figure who's no longer in their life. They don't, they aren't cognizant of this. They don't go, I need you to be my mother figure. They don't say, they don't put their heads in their lap and, and then, like, and then fall asleep there, even though they've known them for less than a week. That's weird. Like, that's just, it just, it feels like a basic misunderstanding of human behaviour. I mean, it also flies in a bit in the face of um, when you, you know, I've, I've listened to some podcasts about people like adopting kids and how long the process can be, not in terms of the adopt- adoption process, but in terms of building that relationship yeah. and that connection. It's not a, like building that trust, it's not a, a weekly matter. It's, for some cases, it's not a, even a, something that you measure in months. You know, it can be years. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this is yet another sign that Silver has something supernatural about her. And her magical I don't aura accept that. Is... I know, I don't... That could be it, maybe. Yeah. 
She's using mind control powers to make them love her. Like Maybe a her, her, her angel, her true angelic self. I'll give you another explanation. I'll give you another explanation. Yeah. And maybe it's not that she's an angel and everyone loves her. Maybe it's that uh, Garvin and his family need to die. And we need to care when they die. So how do you do that? Well, obviously in terms of the kids, you need her to take on a motherly role. Because that's how adult women um, relate to children. Okay, that makes sense. So why would a woman care if a man died? It can o- There's only one reason. There's only one reason. It can't be because they're friends. It, it can't be because that, you know, he looks after her when she was sick and she feels a connection to him. It, it has to be because they're sleeping together. There's no other explanation. Okay. Yes. I mean, not yes, in yes, fact, but yes, there's... no. I get what you're saying. And in fact, there's almost no, with the exception of Justin and Livia, there is zero female-male relationship who aren't connected by blood where the connection to them isn't established through romance or sex. I no, I disagree. Because still, okay. oh wait, wait, are you saying established in a crystal room thing? So Silver has doesn't really have a relationship with Justin or Randall. We haven't talked about Randall yet. We'll get to him. Um, Livia Silver doesn't have a connection to Randall. That's right. She doesn't have a connection to either of them. No, and then Livia, I would say it's it's non it's a non sexual relationship with Justin. And I say her relationship with... That's what I said. Okay, and then Caleb. Yeah, that is too. And then... But but there is very clearly, like, set up to be like, oh, I feel like Caleb and Libya are going to be a thing. That's what we're being led to, to understand. And one of the characters who knows Caleb even goes like, I can tell you her feelings for her. Actually, I don't like when that happens. Uh, and then there's Mullen, which I think is... Uh... Yeah, Mullen is the exception to that. Where it can... And it's also... A reason why I actually give a damn when he dies because Mullen and Livia have a cool have a cool friendship, which is starting to develop. I think that's something to kind of point out here is that every one of our sort of principal four main characters all have a "your life is ruined and the person you love is dead" moment. Yeah, like uh, Justin has the death of Mullen. Livia has the death of her uncle, who I swear is called Ben. I think that's uncle right. Ben dies. Cool. Um, yeah. Silver has the family killed, and then Caleb. You've got it's sort of in his his uh, torture scene, but it's also when his mentor figure uh, dies there, mm-hmm. and all of them it's it's the same kind of motivation, it's the same like yeah, it's all tragic yeah. backstory. It's all the same. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. It's all it's all very 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 much the same. I tried to explain to uh, Georgie before. I was like, how do I embellish the phrase? This wasn't good, but I liked it, and give it more meat to try mm-hmm. to articulate it to people. And I think part of this is this book does one thing very well over, say, a book I also wasn't super keen on, Malice, uh, by John Gwynn. This book is short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think some that that length is is a, a benefit. You know, we often talk if you're writing sort of an academic, particularly a STEM-related paper. You know, the the bonus marks go to the guy who can say the most in the fewest words. Mm-hmm. Now, that's right. The person, sorry. And the element of this is, I do like the fact that uh, the author here, Ford, he's moving the plot along. And some of these character motivations are basic. The character motivations can be a bit cookie cutter. But if that's just Ford's way of getting the action rolling, getting us out there, getting our sword and sorcery adventure on the road, 
It doesn't but... succeed, but I would understand what he's trying to do. No, it doesn't succeed because here's the crux is that um there's no end game. Like they keep saying, Livia, there's nowhere safe for you, which is a really good thing to say to, to ramp up the tension. But you also realize in that moment, okay, so how does this book end? Like they need something to be working towards. It's like Justin, Justin, going after Livia. It's like the dog chasing the car. What's he going to do once he gets her? Oh, I... He can't take her anywhere. I fixed this. He's just going to be defending her for the rest of their lives. I fixed this. I fixed this. I came up with an idea for this, which I thought was going to be, okay. would have been really good. Okay. Here's my pitch. At the end of this book, there's a siege and Livia is being taken there. Um, we don't really know any of this yeah. beforehand so that they can try and awaken no. the god or demon spirit in her and use her power to basically uh, stave off the siege. Okay. That's what this death cult's doing. But... We don't know about this until they're literally mm. on the boat. And Caleb's like, where are we going? Are we not going there? He's like, no, no, no. We must go here before there is fighting. Yep. Why not set that there up? There are five chapters left. Much earlier. Why not introduce Caleb earlier and introduce this idea yep. that uh, this death cult, which Caleb's part of, we don't necessarily care, but we set up the fact that they're in a mm. war. And we make it very clear who the sides are very early on. We choose the characters who represent the sides. Mm-hmm. And we say, it's like, like, like Troy be like the great siege is happening and it cannot be broken no one can break this siege and then they go go get livia you have to get livia to this place to break the siege yep and, and what you're describing duncan is you're describing a conan story and you're right that's what this should have been this should have been about um a character who a woman is abducted and just and Justin, our, our main hero has to get her back he would be the conan figure in this he's chasing her down and he has to save her at the last minute from a ritual sacrifice. You can see the the pulpy sword and sorcery book cover in front of you. And it's, How exciting. And there's elements there that can build on it. You know, uh, Justin has Mullen, who's like his, a bit of a mentor, but he loses him partway along the way. You've got Caleb, who's mm-hmm. on sort of the, the, the villain side of that equation, who's kidnapped Olivia. But we're characterising him a bit. We see he's maybe going to do a bit of a turn cloak at the last minute. Also, Olivia right. doesn't need to be as bad as she is Livia as she's discovering her powers on the journey can save people mm-hmm. like she does she saves Caleb at a point because she's like I'd rather be taken by mm-hmm. you than taking these guys she can make breaks you know she doesn't have to necessarily have to succeed at any point to fulfill the plot but she could still be fighting back she still be exploring herself and you could see her either work her magic or slowly you know is she going to bring Caleb to her side which they do a little bit of yeah, but it doesn't. It's there. It doesn't result in it. I know because Caleb doesn't turn in like turn cloak fully in this novel, and I'm yeah. just like he he tries and then immediately dies. It is it is almost frustrating because I feel like yeah. if you just I feel like I want to sit down with Ford and be like, hey Ford, you've I think you've got you've got a bit of talent here. You know your prose, which I haven't mentioned, isn't bad. Um, I I generally knew what was going on. And I, I got a sense of the place. I don't know where they were in relation to each other. But you could set a scene, set the dinner table. That, that's nice. But could we just majorly rework the entire structure of your plot, take out a load of chapters and add some new ones in? Uh, that would be great. Thank you. Oh, my God. Can I, talk, I want to talk about my favourite scene in this book. Um, it's the scene when they get the option to run away. They get the chance, Livia and Caleb get the chance to run away. And, she, and Livia says, Caleb, B, 
be free with me. Run away with me and we'll be together and we'll be free. And this is almost verbatim how the dialogue goes back and forth between them. Come with me. I can't. Yes, you can. We can go far away. You have a choice. Stay a slave or, or come with me and be free. Very well. I choose freedom. Am I am I exaggerating, Duncan? I mean, you, you put a lot into those voices, so that was very well done. But in terms of the uh, lines... Thank you, Duncan. In terms of the actual lines, no, that seems fairly verbatim. It is a single... Yeah. Two, back and front. Run away. No. Please. Okay. Yeah, and then he doesn't do it. He agrees to do it. And then Jostin comes up and is like, I'm going to rescue you. And and Caleb knocks him unconscious. And then they run away and he takes her onto the boat where she's going to get sacrificed. Like, he just completely turns back to the bad guys again. He doesn't even turn. Like, none of his actions show that he turned. He Mm -hmm. just goes straight into it. And... This is another element that I just can get because, like, that scene there, and they're running through the town, and there's the boat, and you're just like, I didn't know the boat was. I wasn't aware we were running to a boat. Like, tell me about mm. the docks or set me up, like. And there's so many interesting things you can do on a chase scene, you know, through a dockyard. Uh, but it's just a road. They just run down a road, and there's some people in the middle of it. I'm going to read another one of my favorite lines. It was the nicest thing. Oh, this is about Livia the day before she's going to be sacrificed. It was the nicest thing she'd ever worn. If she had to die the next day, at least she'd look good. Well done, R.S. Ford. Good job writing women about how much they love shopping. Um, I want to say something that I liked. I liked Mullen. You don't have to, Bo Duncan. You don't actually have to. Okay, no, I've got one thing here. You've, 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 you've gone up to bat for this book the way you always do. And I love how, how positive you try to be about books. And I do as well. But when I feel like they don't deserve it, I don't I don't go up to bat for them. And I'm not going up to bat for this book. Can we talk about uh, another character that we haven't really mentioned? Okay. A character that I think is very badly done, but could have been interesting. And actually kind of was in how swervy the characterization was. And I never knew quite what the author okay. wanted me to feel. And that's the character of Randall. Yeah, yeah, okay. Rand- so Randall is like an evil minion for a bad guy. Yes. Uh... Murders Livia's uncle? Uncle Ben. Yes, uncle. And Uncle Ben. He kills Uncle Ben. He's Sandman. And he's the one who who sort of triggers all the events of the book. And at a certain point, after Livia escapes from him, he enters into this unusual alliance with Jostin. He's he's the one who chased Jostin down and, like, when... Livia changes hands a bunch. But the point is that, like, he and Justin have gone head-to-head to get Livia, and he's actually had Mullen killed, like, Justin's best friend in the world. And yet, afterwards, Justin and Randall need to enter an unlikely alliance to get Livia back from Caleb. And in this forced alliance, it's made very clear at the start, they're like, the first chance I get, I will put a dagger in your back. And he's like, the same. And there's a group of, like, mercenaries to get sent along with them, basically told, stop these two from killing each other. Don't know why. Yeah, that was necessary, but nonetheless, why the guy doing this? Yes, cared? it's it's very, it's very strange. Um, but they go off, at... especially since they leave, and then they don't kill each other. Exactly, and this is the interesting like... characterization. Rand was being set up as this almost religious fanatic, part of a group of people called the Tally Men, who go hunting. They're the witch hunters, and they go and they find women. And they torture and they murder. They are terrible, 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 terrible people. 
yet Randall it doesn't get an arc of like uh, redemption. He doesn't arc, get an arc, but he doesn't no. get killed. We Justin just sort of, and at the at the end of the book, he doesn't kill Randall. He makes a conscious decision. Oh, you saved my life in all of the fighting that just happened. We're even. We're going to go our separate ways. And I was just like, I don't think that quite balances out. Like Randall, to me, was still no. He very murdered evil. your best friend. Yeah, he had your best friend killed, and gruesomely, my add. Yeah, really unnecessarily gruesomely. Like, actually made my eyes roll. Um, yeah, who the fuck gives a shit about Randall? I, I just, I couldn't... Like, he's the... Yeah, like, why is Randall a main character in this book? It's so strange. Have you ever watched the old uh, Disney cartoon, Recess? Yes, it's exactly what was playing from my mind the whole time, actually. That little, that, that, that little kid, like, grown up, that that is this character. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Perfectly. I was like, man, must suck to be called Randall when it's such an evil name. Why is that name evil? Is it because of the characterization? It sounds like a rattlesnake. Yeah, don't trust Randall's. Fuck you, Randall, who's listening to this. All right. Um, yeah, I think I've made myself pretty clear. There's more I could say, and most of it is about, like, I, it just that the book is kind of sexist, like the way it writes women. Uh, my fa- Another favorite line of mine, We'll be there, Mara beamed as she pinched Lydia's left buttock, as women do! Yes. Do you know Morris what? Ford has never met a woman. They, they aren't allowed in Lancashire. What's happening uh, at having this conversation is I'm going from oh, what's something I did kind of enjoy myself to feeling an increased level of shame for enjoying myself. And I want to say it's not any of these bits uh, that George is pointing out. Yeah, there was still a sense <laughs> of general momentum, and I did want to see these characters get into fights. And like I said, I enjoyed the Caleb section when he got his sort of sword training. But there's just a level of, I'm going to call it stupid, and it's not even like campy fun um, or like no. pulpy fun. This doesn't have, I know we talk about this a lot, uh, the writer like, say, Bobby Howard, or, uh, do you know what, I'm, I'm not going to reference him, let's talk about Michael Moorcock in terms of like sword and sorcery. Yeah, and I was just thinking, Elric. Elric yeah. Like short, uh, short sword and sorcery fiction with gods and demons and morally uh, not clean cut characters. Yeah, and and it's often gory and violent and dark. Exactly. And what I think those have that this doesn't, and I'm sorry for that I'm comparing you to Moorcock, but ultimately readers have the choice to read for the Moorcock. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a... That's that's what you're up against whenever you put out any literature. And it's, yeah, it's harsh, but... Yeah, those sex scenes, huh? Let's not... Let's not... They're not... They're not very erotic. Were they meant to be, though? Because I think there is... See, I love batting yes. for this. Uh, were they meant to be? Because in every sex scene, we get a bit of out-of-body experience for the magical women involved, yeah. where we see uh, in depth to, like, the higher magical planes. And as I'm saying this, I'm feeling, like, scummy. Um, like, we do. That kind of sense. Um, and maybe that thing, it's not meant to be about the eroticism or the, or the, the romance of the love. Certainly not the romance. Um, but it's meant to... It certainly is not about romance. But it's about uh, that trans... No, I don't even like saying it. Because obviously every time basically they have sex, there's like normally a vision that sort of plays out over the sex. Yeah. And then when they cut back, everyone's just really mm-hmm. hot and sweaty. And um, it doesn't... It doesn't make any of it feel sort of impassioned or empowered. You sort of go, oh, no. why was I given that exposition? Why have we done this sort of... Um, moved away from this moment? Because... Ultimately, the sex, it doesn't add to the narrative, it adds to the plot. Like, you could fade yeah. to black, 
Why does Aris Ford connect um, sex and romance from a female perspective with violent battle? That's weird. Now see, now see, when you phrase it like that, I'm thinking, I see, Geordie, Ford is secretly making a very uh, astute point about our society. No, he's not making it. No, he's not making an astute point. That would be a very unastute point. That would be very reductive. That would be taking away women's agency and choosing to have sex. It would be a very turfy perspective to say that any interaction with a man is in some way, you know, debasing towards women, which is um, which is an anti-feminist perspective. Um, but when you say it like that, it's just like oh, because I see what he's trying to do. Is he's trying to layer? Do you remember early seasons of Game of Thrones? They used to have something that they used to joke about called sex position. Where they would give you exposition yep. while they had sex. It's like, that was kind of the same yep. vibe I got. It's like, there's going to be a sex scene and I will give you backstory. And it's like, don't. Because it's not building to the characters and it makes it just. Yeah. And I don't really. Yeah. yeah. And I'm okay with pointless sex scenes if it's showing things like, oh, the characters are having sex. They are, you know, connected to one another. The romance has reached this point. But none of it was romantic. There is no romance in this story. Um, it felt so utilitarian. Like, the way every sex scene is actually kind of written the exact same, which is that a man and a woman kiss, and then it's written from a female perspective, and it said she could feel him growing hard. Um, every single time, except for the last one, in the third to last chapter, in which I almost threw up in my mouth, when it says she... <laughs> Oh god, she could feel his manhood pressing at the entrance to her quim. <laughs> okay, I give up. I'm not batting anymore. That's it. I I almost I just like oh my god, you did not just write that. That's ridiculous. I so much for this book. I want to give it yeah you know, the truths, the kilts. The that soldiers killing each other for the, the best man for the final, the characterization, Lydia's, mm-hmm. you know, lack of agency, uh, the 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 juxtaposition and tone, the unnecessary gruesome uh, goriness and edginess. Yep. I, Here's the thing. You can do so much better. You can get all that stuff in better books, right? You can. You really can. Yeah. Um. If I have to come away with a recommendation. I think people should read Empire the Vampire. Do you know what? I agree. I uh, everything we've talked about. Everything we talked about. Um, and I my same point about uh, reference to Empire Vampire is a good one. Michael Moorcock and his Elvik is another great example, mm-hmm. as previously mentioned. Um, the biggest plus I have for this book was its length. And do you know what? Moorcock writes short, punchy stories. If you want something that expands on mm. it and makes it a bit bigger and grandiose. Um, Empire of the Vampire by K.J. Parker. Edit over me if that was the wrong name. That's definitely not a name. What are you talking about? <laughs> Who's that? That's someone. Christoph by Christoph. Empire of the Vampire by Christoph. Sorry, George. You, you edit how I'm going to have an editing there. Oh, will I now? Will I now? Uh, okay. <laughs> so we're in agreement then. This book has elements that are good, but they're done better elsewhere. Yes. And you should Much read better. them in those other texts. I agree. I am glad. Even if you can get this book for free, like me, skip it. You would have to be... If you're scrolling through Audible, and you're like me, and you you forgot to renew, and you just need something to kind of justify the time, go and find a classic. 
go and dig out something maybe a bit more dusty and old. Um, but that will give you more than this does. Yeah. Buy the longest book you possibly can. Get your money worth. Buy 48 hours of fantasy novel. Why not? You're spending the same amount on it. So, so true. Alright. So, if you want to read a book like this that's better, you can read A Game of Thrones, you can read Elric, you can read Empire the Vampire. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would even... Just skip this one. Skip this one. Duncan, even recommend us a Conan short story, which you feel like accomplishes the same end. Oh, God. Oh, easy. Um, uh, which shall be born? Which shall be born? Yeah, it's got it's got the gore you want. There's a there's a torture scene in that if that's what you're really after. Uh, I even say like people of the black circle is kind of similar in terms of it's about escorting a woman across a very dangerous area, right? And then having to rescue her from a death cult. Okay, people, I just got very excited because even if you know you're like you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but what I want is misappropriated clothing. For the environment. <laughs> and none of those books have that. You're in luck. But I do have one other recommendation. If you want to get misappropriated clothing. And it's a bit of the inverse. But go and read. Coleman's. Legend of Kern. Book one. Blood of Wolves. Because sir. Okay. It is a Conan tie-in novel. To the Conan MMORPG. That came out. Oh my god! So in Samaria. And the Sumerians wear kilts and ponchos. Ponchos? I know. That's amazing. And it's a better book than this one. (laughs) Go read it. So, Duncan, on this podcast, we mix up who chooses which book. And boy, howdy, are we on a bit of a bad streak. Uh, One of us has disliked the book the other person has chosen, Every week for the past three episodes. And I say week, it's it's bi-weekly, which means it's been actual months since we read a book that both of us liked. I'm here, dear listeners, to bring us back. So many of you who follow along have been going, you know, each fortnight reading the book thinking, gosh, I like this podcast, but you've got to stop picking such terrible books. I say that one of them was American Gods, but still, well, I've got something that I felt was inspired by this book but much better. Great. Oh, good. And I'm actually really nervous about this. <laughs> I really want to read a good book again. Geordie, didn't you like the siege at the end of this book? Wasn't that like just the best bit? No. <laughs> well, I was thinking, what's one of the most iconic sieges? Troy? You got it right on the money, mate. For our next book, we'll be reading hey. Song of Achilles. By Madeline Miller. Oh, baby! I've always wanted to read this one. Song of Achilles. Here we go. And if you've also read this book, and to be honest, I know we've joked a lot and we said, you know, it is free on Audible. If you've listened to us and for some reason you really want to, and you've got your subscription, I, you know, I won't tell you what to do. And if you listen to it and you have appear, you know, opinions differing to us, let us know. Maybe it will click for you. And you can send your opinions in at if it's just fantasy podcast at gmail.com. And uh, let us know if it's an interesting opinion and not absolutely crazy. Uh, we'll be happy to read it out. We'll probably read it out even if it's a little bit mad. I'll read out these fucking crazy opinions. I want to see someone who goes to really goes to bat for this book. 
And Nessa like, you're a bunch of woke SHWs, whatever. Fuck you. Um, That's just to the people who say that. Obviously, we love all our listeners and thank you for tuning in. Nah, fuck them. Right. Well, thank you for listening to this all one, right. guys. And it's been a fun couple of weeks. But hopefully next time, it's going to be a good one. And you can reach out to us at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com. I've been Duncan Nickel. And I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye.